You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1954th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 9th of November 2023. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin, the producer is Pat Needham and your readers are Nick and Jill Gain. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. Anger at £1,600 a week cost on security at antisocial bus station. Increased demand as cost of living crisis continues. New mental health garden opens door to community. Plea to Greg's a shop front is branded disgraceful. A decision to spend over £1,500 a week on security guards to curb antisocial behaviour in a Bury St Edmunds bus station, has been slammed. West Suffolk Council has hired private security for the bus station following reports of gangs of young people and others jumping on the seats. Initially, the plan was to close the bus to the station down on November the 1st, but instead the council decided to keep it open and guarded. However, leader of the opposition on West Suffolk, Mick Clark, says the council is paying for work the police should be doing and that locals were not consulted on the plans. He said the responsibility for law and order in Bury St Edmunds rests with the police and not with West Suffolk Council, particularly when we know the Western Way Leisure Centre project has been cancelled by the Labour Group on the grounds of costs and now thousands will be spent on security guards, I think unnecessarily. Councillor Clark added, Two weeks ago, the ruling Labour coalition took the decision unilaterally to close the waiting room at the bus station. Uh, this was without any consultation with anybody. We launched a campaign and were surprised to hear the cabinet member changed direction and is not now not going to close the waiting room, but is going to put guards there. We haven't seen any statistics to say if this is needed or not. I suspect there will be another U-turn on this before long. We don't know if this is an expense we need yet. Where are the statistics? However, Barry St Edmunds Police Inspector Andy Beebe has said previously that the council shares responsibility with dealing with antisocial behaviour with the police. Since March, police have been called to multiple incidents, including fighting at the waiting room area. Cabinet Member for Operations at West Suffolk Council, David Taylor, has said previously... People have reported feeling unsafe and the continuous issues of crime and antisocial behaviour taking place in and around the waiting room. But I believe politicians should be prepared to listen and I have listened and taken on board the concerns raised. We are putting in security to give the public greater confidence in using this facility. Suffolk Constabulary was contacted for further comment. Citizens Advice West Suffolk has seen an increase in the number of people needing its services, with the cost of living crisis changing the types of issues people are facing. The advice organisation, which has offices in Bury St Edmunds, Haverhill, Newmarket, Brandon and Mildenhall, has had a difficult year 
ensuring that resources are matched to those who need it. This year, it has already seen a 16% increase in those needing the surface, on top of a 6% rise last year. Carol Eagles, Chief Officer at Citizens Advice West Suffolk, said, The cost of living crisis means that people are finding it harder to make ends meet. People are needing to increase their income. We help people apply for welfare benefits, but we can also talk to them about other ways they can boost their income. It might be taking in a lodger or encouraging non-dependents to help pay towards their living costs. There's an increase in people with housing issues, so people that need help with rent and mortgage arrears or problems with disrepair in their houses or mould, they are our biggest areas. From April the 1st, 2022 to March 31st this year, the service helped 5,148 clients with 28,588 issues. The volunteers at Citizens Advice help people with filling out forms, appeals, emails, phone calls or applying for money from charitable organisations. This winter, Carol said she expected that demand would increase as more people struggled. It's only going to increase because during the summer, People haven't been spending as much on their energy. They haven't had their heating on, she added. Food and petrol prices are still high compared to what it was like pre-pandemic. She said 10 volunteers across the district were vitally needed to ensure that Citizens Advice could continue helping people. We rely on volunteers. The more volunteers we have, the more people we can help, she said. People think volunteers are free and they're not because we have to train them. If you're interested in volunteering, go to visit the Citizens Advised West Suffolk website. A new therapy garden has showcased what it has to offer to promote good mental health for patients at its site and widely local community. The garden at Norfolk and Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust Wedgwood House on the West Suffolk Hospital site in Berries and Edmonds represents the culmination of a two-year £100,000 fundraising project and the transformation of green wasteland into a biodiverse sensory garden for use by patients, staff, carers and vulnerable members of the wider community. An inaugural event in October the 26th to celebrate the Green Minds Wedgwood Therapy Garden welcomed representatives from the local voluntary sector, trust staff and patients and project members to see the garden and hear about plans for its future. An official opening for the garden will be held in summer 2024. NSFT clinical psychologist Ollie Hockley told guests, We want this to be a community space. This isn't just about a Wedgwood House garden, it's for all of us. Specialist landscaper designer Mia Witham talked about the garden's sensory and therapeutic elements, saying green space is a key aspect of recovery. The garden has been built by Stuart Landscape Construction and planted with more than 2,000 plants by Wedgwood House patients, staff and a team of local volunteers. Project leader and assistant psychologist Catherine Falk said, the garden has patient-led design elements at its heart and has been created with the environment and wider community in mind. Our mission is to offer a place of recovery and reflection as well as a hub for therapeutic horticultural activities, a safe and welcoming garden 
where user groups can learn about sustainability in all forms, from gardening for beginners, growing food, nutrition and healthy living to gardening for wildlife, biodiversity and the environment. Creative workshops including art, crafts and seasonal sessions will also be included. Through collaborations with charities and community groups, the garden will offer vulnerable people in the wider community year-round gardening workshops to empower people with new skills, combat isolation and anxiety, increase confidence and hope and promote learning. A rapid deterioration in the state of a historic Bury St Edmund shop front has been slammed as a disgrace. Adrian Tyndall, chair of Bury St Edmund's tour guides, has now called on bakery chain Greg's to urgently repair the building it occupies at 11 Abbeygate Street. His appeal has been echoed by Martin Taylor, chair of the Bury Society, which supports the interests of the town, former town councillor Tom Murray and Mark Cordell, chief executive of our Bury St Edmunds, which markets the town. They have dubbed the exterior of the building a disgrace and an embarrassment. The Bury Free Press first highlighted complaints about bare and rotting wood, peeling paint, blocked guttering and deteriorating window frames in March this year. At the time, the bakery store, housed in a Grade 2 star listed late Georgian period building, had been described as Britain's poshest Greggs by a number of national newspapers. There are now fears it may soon be beyond repair and could be dangerous. Mr Tyndall said, there has been a rapid deterioration since spring. It is in a disgraceful state. We take visitors down Abbeygate Street every day and the Greg store is housed in one of the most prominent and important buildings in the street. It is Grade 2 star listed, not just Grade 2, which means it is particularly significant. Only 5% of listed buildings are Grade 2 star and considered of more than special interest. It's embarrassing to see a building of that significance in its current state with still nothing being done. I have occasionally said to visitors, this is what is known as Britain's poshest Greggs and they have snorted in disbelief. Greggs took over the building from the baker's oven in May 1994. It has a second smaller store in Cornhill. Number 11 Abbeygate Street is owned by London-based D&A Limited and leased to the food chain according to the UK Land Registry. It is of late Georgian, early 19th century design, but the interior dates from the 17th century and its windows are Gothic. Martin Taylor, chair of the Bury Society, a charity set up to support the town's interests, said, the lower panels are now in an appalling state. It makes you question, when it gets to a certain state, how much can you save? and if any repairs will be consistent with the historic interest. Tom Murray, former Bury Town Councillor, said, I have repeatedly called for action from Greggs and sent them pictures and videos. I worry it is dangerous if the gutters collapse or even the sign falls off. Tour guide Mr Tyndall has called on West Suffolk Council for support. A spokesman for the council said, Greggs had appointed a maintenance company and a contractor was scheduled to carry out works in the summer. Unfortunately, that work didn't happen, but a new contractor has been appointed and we are speaking to the maintenance company to get a start date. A spokesperson for Greg said, We are committed to repairing the shop 
and will provide an update on this in due course. And now for some general news. A Suffolk Council has been awarded more than £210,000 of funding to help with increased utility costs and ensure swimming pools stay open. West Suffolk Council has been given £213,000 in Sports England Phase 1 swimming pool grants funding for three pools at Bury St Edmunds, Haverhill and Newmarket Leisure Centres, which are owned by the Council and operated by Abbeycroft Leisure. Since 2020, Abbeycroft has seen energy costs rise by about £1.5 million a year. The new grant follows £300,000 agreed by West Suffolk Council as part of the 2023-24 budget to support facilities remaining open in West Suffolk during these challenging times. Ian Shipp, Cabinet Member for Leisure, said, I'm delighted with this award. Being physically active is fundamental to our health and swimming pools are valued by a huge range of ages and abilities. The unprecedented rises in energy costs plus inflation have put severe pressure on budgets. But this council has made healthy families and communities a priority and we have been working closely with Abbeycroft Leisure to keep the pools open. This funding is very helpful. Warren Smythe, Chief Executive of Abbeycroft Leisure, added, Soaring energy costs, the impact of Covid and cost of living pressures are putting swimming pools across the country under huge pressure. We have received excellent support from West Suffolk Council, but this is a much wider issue and we are very pleased to have received this national award. Sport England's Director of Place, Lisa Dodd-Main, said, Many pools have faced a real and significant threat to their survival this year, as local authorities and operators battle the challenge of increased energy and maintenance costs, weakened reserves and difficulties with retaining staff. Today's announcement is an important moment in time, but is by no means the end of the work facing us, or the support available as we continue to work with our partners to ensure the long-term viability of these vital community resources. Community. Members of Suffolk's Jewish community have said they have not seen the rise in hate crimes against them following the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza. In London, there has been a reported 1,350% rise in hate crime offences against Jews. Other areas of the UK have seen huge growth in hate crime, but in Suffolk, the community says it is so small it does not attract attention. However, in the recent figures, it is not only the Jewish population, but the Muslim populations too, who have experienced an increase in hate. A spokeswoman for the Suffolk Liberal Jewish community said, We are largely invisible. We don't have a synagogue. We meet irregularly, and so we're quite hard to find. We had a service on Saturday and asked for police to be present, and they came, but it was unnecessary. I'm not aware of any attack on local people because they're Jewish. The spokeswoman added, I think anti-Semitism rumbles on under the surface, but I'm not aware of any threat to me. She said she was aware of the rally held by Free Palestine Suffolk on Saturday in Cornhill, which was attended by hundreds of people. She added, I'm not in favour of the actions of the Israeli government, although others are. The synagogue, founded in Rope Walk, Ipswich, closed as long ago as 1867 because the community became too small to maintain it. The rise in hate crime across the country 
has come following the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, which began on October the 7th. Hamas, which governs Gaza and which is prescribed by the UK and other governments as a terrorist organisation, killed more than 1,400 people in Israel with its initial attacks on October the 7th, while taking more than 200 others into Gaza as hostages. The UK government has expressed support for what Israel says is its right to defend itself. Estate agents have named the areas in Suffolk which have seen the strongest demand from buyers in 2023. Savills has revealed they have seen a reversal of trends noted during the pandemic, with people looking to move back towards towns. Peter Ogliff, head of residential sales, believes areas such as Woodbridge, Berries and Edmonds and parts of Ipswich are seeing strong demand. He said, Interestingly, we've seen a reversal this year of what we experienced during the pandemic. More buyers are choosing to move back towards towns so they can be close to schools, lots of facilities and good transport links as they start to work from the office again. Woodbridge remains popular, as does Berries and Edmonds. We've also seen strong demand in Ipswich, particularly in the roads around Christchurch Park, where some homeowners have sold for in excess of £1 million. The estate agent added that a slight rise in house prices has been driven by a lack of stock. The most recent nationwide price index has shown a small increase in house prices in the last month, but I don't think people should get too carried away, he added. The rise in prices has mostly been driven by a lack of stock. A lot of sellers are deciding to take their property off the market for a short period. Our most recent research shows that the average values for prime property have fallen by 5% when compared to last year. West Suffolk MP Matt Hancock has said more needs to be done within the justice system to help prisoners learn to read and thereby improve their prospects after release from prison. Mr Hancock made the observation in a letter sent last Thursday to Justice Secretary Alex Chalk in which he called for the screening of neurodivergent conditions such as dyslexia. Last September, the MP, who is dyslexic, launched the Accessible Learning Foundation to push for wider understanding of neurodiversity in schools, prisons and the workplace. In his letter, Mr Hancock said the 2022 report from His Majesty's Inspectorate of Prison and Ofsted revealed that 57% of adult prisoners had literacy levels below those expected of an 11-year-old. He added, This alarming statistic clearly shows we must do more. By taking decisive action, we can help reduce the reoffending rate and provide offenders with the support they need to find employment and positively contribute to UK society. Money raised from Suffolk Historic Churches Trust's Ride and Stride event as well as its Pedal and Drive Car Rally in September, is set to help seven West Suffolk churches. Grants ranging from £660 to £6,000 from a £37,000 fund plot will be given to churches including Keddington, Lawshall, Warsham Le Willows and Debenham, as well as five sites in East Suffolk. The money will be used on things such as replacing 1980s lighting and repairs to naves and church towers. John DeVoe, Grant's committee chairman, said the total cost of work to the 12 churches is approximately 
£464,000, with one having to find £130,000. It is hoped that the Trust Awards will strengthen applications made by churches to additional fund holders, some of whom require applicants to have already raised up to 50% of the total sum required. A popular West Suffolk hotel could expand its offering with 10 more rooms if plans submitted to a council are given the green light. All Saints Hotel in Fornham St Genevieve near Bury St Edmunds has requested permission from West Suffolk Council to change an office space on the second floor into 10 bedrooms. The bedrooms, all of which would have en suite, would be a mixture of three premier executive suites, two executive suites and five other bedrooms. They would replace a large office area and meeting room on the second floor of the hotel. The plans also include six roof lights and three automatic opening vents. In a statement to West Suffolk Council, the applicant stated that various other uses were considered, but bedrooms seemed the most appropriate choice and the best use of space. The additional accommodation reflects the success of Bury St Edmunds as a destination to visit and to do business in, they said. The unique mix of facilities at this locality also helps create an added benefit on visiting. A 140-year-old railway signal box at Thetford train station, said to be only one of six of its kind left in the UK, should be safeguarded for future generations, the Towns Council has agreed. The Grade 2 listed box, which was built in 1883, stands immediately to the west of the main station building on the north side of the line. At Thetford Town Council's last meeting, councillors unanimously agreed to write to new, new network rail in the hope that it will protect the signal box, which is located in what is regarded as one of the finest surviving station complexes in East Anglia. Speaking at the meeting, Breckland councillor Stuart Terry said, We have all been saddened over the last few years to see the signal box fall into disrepair, with windows now boarded up, and the paint be beginning to peel. It is noticeable as you arrive at Thetford by train, and for many s signifies their arrival at the station. It is Grade 2 listed due to it being a good example of the GER Type 4 design, the key features of which is its brick construction in contrast to many other GER design which are either all timber or timber upper sections on brick base. A network rail spokesperson said, We are aware of Thetford Council's concerns about the redundant signal box and we share their interest in maintaining the Grade 2 listed structure for future generations. We have a schedule of inspections repairs and renewals to make sure the fabric of the building is maintained and address any safety issues that may arise which may impact the operations railway which is our main priority. Stowe Market is preparing to kick off a range of festive events leading up to its annual Christmas Fair. The festivities will start on Thursday, November 23rd with a market of festive food, music and mulled wine and the town's Christmas lights will also turn on during this event. Last year the Christmas lights were activated in accordance with ITV Anglia news presenter Becky Diego hitting the switch at the Christmas Tree Festival at St Peter and St Mary's Church. Many residents gathered to watch the lights turn on, but were left disappointed that the event was taking place in the church 
after believing the event to be in the town centre in Ipswich Street. The official Stowmarket Christmas Light Switch On event was replaced by the Christmas Fair in 2019 and the Council has not hosted a formal countdown since then. This year the lights will be turned on during Thursday evening and will there will not be a countdown or celebrity guest to press a button. The Council confirmed the lights will just turn on at some point during the afternoon. A spokesperson for Stowmarket Town Council said, We are really excited to host a festive weekend in Stowmarket. There is plenty going on for families to enjoy and we hope it urges them to visit the town centre to support our businesses and traders. The following day, on Friday, November the 24th, more than 360 Christmas trees will be turned on at the Christmas Tree Festival at St Peter's and St Mary's Church, and local bowls champions Catherine and John Rednell will activate the tree's lights. Saturday, November 25th, will see families welcome to the Saturday Market, which will include fairground rides, face painting and the market's regular traders. The grand finale will take place on Sunday, November 26th, with the return of Stowmarket Christmas Fair from 10am to 4pm. The fair will offer festive market stalls, street entertainment, carol singers and a brass band. The Food Museum is hosting an ice rink and animal experience, while Father Christmas will be making an appearance at the Regal with a live performance and a meet and greet session. There will also be a craft market at the Mix and Red Gables, will have a charity family fun area. Children at a Suffolk school are thrilled after receiving a letter from the King and Queen thanking them for their coronation celebrations, which went viral in May. St Gregory Primary School in Sudbury received the letter from King Charles III and Queen Camilla for a video that has been viewed on X, formerly Twitter, 124,000 times. In the video, two students, George and Olivia, both five, dressed as the King and Queen for their coronation, with the rest of the school and staff waving and cheering. Another video, which hit 100,000 views, shows George as King Charles saying his first proclamation, free ice cream for everyone, with an ice cream van showing up just after he said it. In the letter from the King and Queen, it said, we were deeply touched by your most kind and thoughtful message following our coronation. We are enormously grateful to everyone who took part in the celebrations and particularly appreciate that you so generously took the time to write to us on this very special occasion. George said, it was really special to get a letter from the King and it made me very happy. Olivia added, when George was made King and said free ice cream and an ice cream truck appeared from nowhere, it was really magical. Daniel Woodrow, head teacher at the school, said the children were thrilled to hear that King Charles and Queen Camilla wrote to them and loved seeing the letter. Our coronation day was a really special occasion and one that we hope the children will remember for years to come. This letter is a lovely way to help them do that. Their Royal Highnesses are more than welcome to visit St Greg's at any time and meet their mini-selves and if the King wanted to treat the children and staff to more free ice cream, then that would be lovely too. Clients and staff from Headway Suffolk took on a 12-hour drumming challenge to raise money to continue funding its team of clinicians. The charity, which supports people who have brain injuries, 
neurological conditions or who suffered strokes, held the fundraising challenge across two days at its Ipswich hub on October the 30th and the Bury St Edmunds hub on October the 31st from 7am to 7pm. Clients, staff and members of the public helped keep up the drumming for the duration and in total £500 was raised to go towards funding occupational therapists, mental health nurses and physiotherapists. Helen Fairweather, CEO of Headway Suffolk, said, The clients really enjoyed it. It was a really good two days. Lots of clients took part and members of the public joined us as well, which was fantastic. So far we've raised £500, which is great. People can still donate. About 50 people took part in total, with 15 staff and clients drumming at the Berry Hub based in Olding Road. Helen said it was vitally important for the charity to fundraise for the clinicians as those roles were no longer funded through a national lottery scheme. It's really important that we have money to spend on our clinicians because they are vital to the work that we do, she said. She explained that the mental health nurse helps clients with poor mental health and who may be struggling to cope with how their brain injury has changed their day-to-day -day living, as well as helping families come to terms with behaviour changes in their loved one. While the physiotherapists help people become mobile again and the occupational therapists help people be able to do day-to-day -day tasks again like getting dressed and making a cup of tea. The clients enjoyed the Drumathon so much the charity hopes to organise a Christmas concert. The mailbox this week covers a range of topics. We start with a letter from Anna Berridge, Branch Director of Bury St Edmunds and West Suffolk Samaritans. 70, 70 years ago this week, on November the 2nd, 1953, the Reverend Chad Vera founded the Samaritans, the world's first crisis hotline. He had presided at the funeral of a 14-year-old girl who had taken her own life because she had misunderstood her menstruation to be a venerable disease. Realising there was little support for those in emotional crisis, he set up the Samaritans in the crypt of his church with the organisation's stated aim to befriend the suicidal and despairing. Since Jad took the first call, the Samaritans have supported millions of people in distress and helped to save countless lives. Volunteers in this branch in Bury and Edmonds have been answering these phones since 1972. Last year alone, we took more than 20,000 calls. To mark the 70th anniversary, I would like to thank our volunteers past and present for all they have done to support callers in despair and to help our vision that fewer people die by suicide. I would also like to offer my sincere gratitude to the people and organisations in the local community for their generous financial support down the years. It costs £39,000 a year to keep this branch going and without your wonderful donations we would simply not exist. The power of volunteers to listen confidentially and without judgement cannot be underestimated. Please remember that when life is difficult, the Samaritans are here day or night, 365 days a year. Call for free on 116123. My first letter is from Councillor <coughs> Graham Parker, spokesperson for Transport East Suffolk Labour Group. I write on behalf of our group, who are delighted that the government has seen sense 
and reversed their plans to close the ticket office at Lowestoft Railway Station, which was going to affect countless number of travellers, particularly in accessing a wide range of affordable tickets and also discriminating against those with disabilities. Following the successful campaign to oppose closure of ticket offices nationally, I would like to thank all those who took part locally, including my own Labour Party colleagues, the East Suffolk Travellers Association, local and national trade union members and the rail using public. When I wrote to you on this matter in July, it seemed as if this was a done deal, but this is an excellent example of what can be achieved when we all work together to challenge poor government decisions that demonstrate that they are out of touch with ordinary people. Next inquiry, B. Walker from Woodbridge writes, Now that the COVID inquiry is revealing some of the chaos, incompetence, negligence and deception that took place at government level during the pandemic, <coughs> isn't it time we had a Brexit inquiry? The failure of Brexit is obvious, but the depth of the deception and truth-twisting that led us there and the motives of the perpetrators need to be exposed. Malcolm Sell from Bakers Lane, Burris and Edmonds says, Alas, the closure of the waiting room at the bus station, due to it becoming a site of antisocial behaviour, is once again an example of the greater forces at work in the decline of our civic and public spaces through incompetence and underfunding for what has been a one-party state for the last 13 years. A Labour administration is now having to sort out the mess. In this case, the once thriving public facilities of a well-staffed, clean and welcoming venue for local and visiting passengers has become broken up, partly privatised and now shut down with not even our local police having the resources to regularly patrol it because our police and crime commissioner is quite happy to impose high precepts on the taxpaying public but doesn't feel the need to challenge his fellow party members in government for adequate funding to do the job. Chickens are coming home to roost and it's us, the ordinary citizens, trying to go about our daily business that are recipients of the inevitable fallout. Sink or swim trial. Don Black from Dis writes, Amid wars and storms, the EADT column by Chris Green on October 31st, Eve of All Saints, helped bring light into a gloomy world. The headline, Drama Recalls the Witchfinder General, referring to Red Rose Chain's production, the Ungodly Avenue Theatre Ipswich, until November the 11th. The plausible rogue Matthew Hopkins achieved more success in Suffolk in his 1645 campaign than in any other county. Fast forward to 1825, when villagers of Wickham Skeeth near Middlesham swam an aged peddler, Isaac Stebbings accused of making two people lose their senses. It was said that the water rejected him, but the farce was soon ended by the rector and church wardens. Might Suffolk be given another tourist attraction by being the only place in the English-speaking world to hold on to superstition for so long? Ian Smith from Berry Edmonds writes, I offer this in addition to the article by the Reverend Ali Miller of Churches Together in Berry St Edmonds from the Berry Free Press on October the 27th from Darkness into Light. Another Halloween has passed, but I wonder how many readers know the background to Halloween. The celebration can be traced back to the Druid Festival of the Dead. 
The Roman pantheon, built by Emperor Hadrian in AD 100 as a temple to the goddess Cybele and other Roman gods, became the principal place of worship. In 109, Emperor Phocas seized Rome and gave the pantheon to Pope Boniface IV. Boniface consecrated it to the Virgin Mary and kept using the temple to pray for the dead. Only now it was Christianized as men added the unscriptural teaching of purgatory. In 1834, Gregory IV extended the feasts for all the church and it became known as All Saints Day, still remembering the dead. Samhain, a druid god of the dead, was honoured at Halloween, or All Hallows' Eve in Britain, Germany, France and the Celtic countries. Samhain called together all wicked souls who died within the past year and who were destined to inhabit animals. The Druids believed that souls of the dead came back to their homes to be entertained by those still living. Suitable food and shelter were provided for these spirits, or else they would cast spells, steal infants, destroy crops, kill farm animals, and create terror as they haunted the living. This is the action that Trick or Treat copies today. The Samhain celebration used nuts, apples, skeletons, witches and black cats. Divination and auguries were practised as well as magic to seek answers for the future. Even today, witchcraft practitioners declare October the 31st as the most favourable time to practise their arts. Don't have nightmares. Woohoo! Learn the lessons and get our rivers moving again. Francis May writes, First of all, I feel for all those affected by this disaster. But please, can the powers that be... Learn a lesson from this. Do not build on floodplains. And when are the government agencies going to employ people that actually have knowledge of how to look after the countryside? The rivers need dredging. Although it would not have stopped this unprecedented event, it would have made far less impact. The amount of silt and rubbish amassed over years of neglect, the water has nowhere to go. The effects on wildlife now underwater. We all know how dirty rainwater is. Imagine years of build-up. So let's get rivers moving again. Encourage life back into them and the banks that sustain a vital ecosystem. Lee Miller via email writes, Can drivers who approach roundabouts from two-lane approaches, generally dual carriageways, please be aware that there is inevitably sufficient space on the roundabout for a continuation of the two lanes. So please... Keep in your lane and don't simply cut across both of those lanes. Thank you. Sir Bobby was an icon respected globally. Brian Davies of Berries and Edmonds writes, We have had to come to terms with the loss of who was perhaps this country's most famous, revered and respected footballer of all time. I think it would be safe to say Bobby Charlton was an icon whose name was known and respected throughout the sporting world and the very mention of his name was enough to conjure up sportsmanship at its best. A photograph on the front page of a national newspaper showed both Jack and Bobby together at a charity match, looking at each other despite their reported differences. In a way, that was beyond description. Liz Matthews from Lowestoft writes, I was delighted to see the article in the East Anglian Daily Times of October the 20th about erecting a statue of Benjamin Britten in Lowestoft. It took me back 58 years to when I was 16. I was one of two schoolgirls who had a lead in Noah's Flood 
in the cathedral in Bury St Edmunds, and Benjamin Britten was coaching us. He was a very gentle man who came prior to the event to encourage us and returned at the end to thank us. He even found the time later in the week to send me a personal letter sent to my home address, which I have to this day signed Benji. I remember the man with fondness for his kindness and humility. I shall look forward to seeing the statue. Your help was so very much appreciated. Brian and Doreen Lapthorne, via email, email write, On October the 16th, my 90-year-old wife fell down the steps at the rear of Boots in Bury St Edmunds and hurt herself quite badly. Immediately, one kind person called 999. Another, who turned out to be a nurse, was quickly at her side. One member of Boots staff quickly brought first aid kit, while others moved display stands to create a barrier around my wife. In minutes, the ambulance arrived and the crew quickly decided that because of my wife's position on the floor, they need to help put, to put her safely on a stretcher and summoned another crew who also arrived in minutes. I drove to the hospital after the ambulance and when I arrived at A&D reception, was told that she was being seen by a doctor. As soon as I had sat down in the waiting area, a gentleman in a pale blue polo shirt asked if I would like a cup of tea. To all those people, we are deeply grateful and convey our sincere thanks. Graham Day from Stowmarket writes, I was pleased to see that Anne Osborne and Charlie Haylock have both recently received honour degrees from the University of Suffolk. As chief executive of the Suffolk Rural Coffee Caravan, Anne was instrumental in securing the success of the project which makes a difference to isolated and vulnerable residents in our county. She herself had experienced isolation and loneliness after moving from Hertfordshire and she eventually became Rural Coffee Caravan's first paid staff member in 2004. Charlie Haylock is well known for his work ensuring that our county's unique dialect is kept alive. As well as writing his books and his spots on BBC Radio Suffolk, he famously tutored the actor Ralph Fiennes, who played archaeologist Basil Brown, in The Dig. To both Anne and Charlie, I say very well done. Your degrees are in well-deserved recognition of the tremendous contribution you have made. Absolutely excellent. Time's flying even faster. Clifford Davy from Stowmarket writes, Shopping in the local Asda, I met a young couple who were colleagues when we all worked in the store a few years ago. The woman left to have their first child. We had not seen each other for some time. On this particular day, the couple had a small child with them. I mentioned that this must be child number two. They smiled and told me this was their fourth offspring, with the oldest now nine years old. How time flies, as the saying goes. Later in the day, relaxing in my armchair, I idly flicked the TV channels coming across the film Stuart Little. This was a favourite video whenever we looked after our great-grandson twins and watched it over and over again and again, sometimes twice in a day. The boys being two or three years old at that time. Did I mention time flies? The twins are now 22 years old. Local historian, author and guide Martin Taylor takes a look at a special wartime archive. The Reverend Samuel Blackall, honorary canon of Ely Cathedral, lived at Abbey Precincts in Bury St Edmunds Great Churchyard until his death in 1899. 
During his time here, he had in his employment a young lady, Anne Youngs. She was born in Earl's Cone, Essex, in 1866, then moved to Lowestoft before coming to Bury. After the canon died, Anne Youngs worked for his daughter, Laura, up to the time Laura died in 1919. It was during this term of employment, when Laura ran a small guest house, that an extraordinary archive was kept at the precincts. In two volumes, the first relates to the people who attended the Berry Pageant of 1907, names of people from all over the country, including the pageant master, Louis Napoleon Parker. However, the second is an incredible document that also has pictures of convalescing World War I troops in the gardens of the guest house. The visiting troops, over 500 of them from all regiments of the British Army in the Commonwealth, signed their names in the book. Probably the most famous is that of Corporal Sidney Day, VC, of the 11th Battalion of the Suffolk Regiment, which can be seen on a line 3 from the bottom of the page right. Sidney was born in July 1891 in Norwich and spent his early years as a butcher. It was while fighting in a position east of Hargicourt in France that he bravely picked up and threw a stick grenade out of his trench, saving the lives of many of his men who would have died as it exploded. Later he was wounded but went on to clear some trenches held by the enemy. His citation of the VC awarded for these actions said, His conduct was an inspiration to all. He died on July the 17th, 1959, and is buried in the Milton Cemetery in Portsmouth. Subsequently, his VC and campaign medals were purchased at auction in 2018 for £160,000 by the Michael Ashcroft Trust and are displayed in the Imperial War Museum Lord Ashcroft Gallery there. When World War I finished, so did the visitors' books. Anne Youngs retired to live at 76 Eastgate Street. During all this time, she had been attending services St James' before and long after it became the cathedral in 1914. Anne was collected by car to attend a service on Armistice Sunday, November 1962, but unfortunately she suffered a stroke in the car outside the cathedral. She died a week later in hospital. It is thought she was the longest serving worshipper at St James. Anne is buried in the churchyard of St John the Baptist Church at Lound near Lowestoft. Right, another feature. In his latest opinion piece in the EADT, writer Martin Newell ponders f f bonfire nights of the past and wonders whether the preparation provides more pleasure than the event itself. It's bonfire night tomorrow. Whatever happened to the ones we used to know? I'm sure that there'll be all the usual warnings about keeping animals indoors and the early why don't we just ban it altogether letters in the papers. As a child in the 1960s, however, I loved it. As an important date in my boyhood diary, it was up there with Christmas and the first day of the summer holidays. Every year, round about early October, a bunch of us would convene on the nearest bit of waste ground to discuss building the bonfire. Old gang rivalries were put aside for this very serious matter. In that post-war period, there were always buildings either going up or being knocked down. In fact, there were still bomb sites in existence too, often girdled by little more than flimsy fences of chestnut paintings, so there was no shortage of stuff to burn. With autumn nights drawing in, it being term time, we could only work on the project by daylight 
and at weekends. As a result, the bonfire grew slowly, with groups of small boys dragging stuff out of the woods piecemeal. Besides, we were all called in earlier on Sunday evenings because it was bath night, then school the next day. But when October half-term came round, with only about two weeks to go, we got properly stuck in. The bonfire was tall, sure. Now, though, it had to be convincingly bulked out. we go round all the houses in the neighbourhood asking people if they'd got anything that needed clearing. Now we made a Guy Fawkes requisitioning old clothes, we found a mask and stuffed him with newspaper. We scoured the neighbourhood ditches and sheds for old lemonade and beer bottles. In the 1960s, if you cleaned the bottles up, you could return them to sweet shops or off-licences and claim a few pennies from their deposits to put towards your firework fund. It was called recycling back then. <laughs> All over Britain, there were kids doing exactly the same as us. On grey autumn days, we'd be out early in the damp, misty air, foraging anything potentially combustible for the big night. There was very little parental dissent. After all, it got us out from under our mother's feet and into the fresh air. It also taught us the bare bones of project management and cooperative working. It cleaned the entire area, sheds, gardens and public spaces of rubbish. The building of the Bonnie, I believe, was seen by the community as a good thing. The only time that a parent might intervene in proceedings was usually as the bonfire needed its completion. Some of the lads would be aware that a team from another area were planning to burn us down before the big night. If the threat seemed credible, a guard needed to be placed on duty. If, however, a boy came in for tea, casually announcing to a parent that he intended to sleep in the bonfire tonight in order to ensure its safety, that's when the veto came into effect. Cautionary tales were told about boys just like us, who'd burned to death under exactly such circumstances. Apart from obviously dangerous activities, though, we were left largely unsupervised to get on with the climbing, lifting and general construction of what would soon become a big, roaring, dangerous bonfire. Only on Guy Fawkes Night itself would various dads appear with torches, matches and other accessories for the occasion. We never returned to an unexploded firework. Actually, sometimes we did, and we were yelled at. Mostly, nobody was injured. Bonfire night, though, was over all too soon. The following morning, a few boys might return to the still smouldering bonfire, raking the ashes and searching in vain for any fireworks which might not have gone off. Alas, there was usually nothing. Another recollection was that we only held bonfire night on November the 5th. We didn't do it on the nearest Friday or a week later in order to fit in with some tweet uh, autumn fair. No, nor did we attend some over-supervised bonfire event held by a local school, watching safely from behind barriers while men in protective clothing let the fireworks off safely on our behalf. The fun of old bonfire nights was that we kids were allowed to do most of it by ourselves, even if we barked our shins, cut our hands or occasionally got a nail through our wellies. It was our own business and nothing whatsoever to do with school. The single biggest life lesson that I learned here was that often it's the making and the preparation which provides more pleasure than the actual event itself. One of the most depressing sentences in the English language is, well, that's it, all over for another year. Because after bonfire night has passed, down will float the last few leaves of summer, 
playing out a few days later by the stuttering mournful brass bands of Remembrance Sunday. And now for some more general news. Sam Reed, co-founder and trustee of Bury St Edmunds Rickshaw, writes, Even though our rickshaw rides are available all year round, we know people love that warm glow of the sun on them as they travel around our stunning town. Our riders and chatty chums try to bring joy into the lives of our passengers, not just by giving up their time, but pointing out historical points of interest, or singing some well-known songs, or even discovering new parts of the town that cars cannot reach. The art of conversation can be lost when someone lives on their own, and it is wonderful to bring the opportunity to talk while feeling the breeze in your hair. Isolation is not seen as a medical problem, but many health professionals see the long-term effect it has on people's well-being. We at Berry Rickshaw have teamed up with social prescribers who are based at each of the doctor's surgeries to help give people that opportunity to talk. I know many people that say they have their best conversations while on the bus or in the car because they're not directly facing someone, which reduces the feeling of confrontation. We do this every day on our rickshaws. Most of the time it is just part of our volunteering team who want to be there for their community, sometimes because our volunteers know how our passengers feel. We truly value our volunteers because of this. From the first call the public make to our controllers, to the chatty chums who sit next to a passenger, and our riders who pedal with a smile on their face, knowing that they are giving, but also receiving that amazing gift of time with fellow human beings. We love the stories that are shared about childhoods or working experiences, and the discussions about swapping recipes or ways to making life a little easier by signposting to other organisations like Re-Engage, who provide free cream teas once a month. It is sometimes the simplest of things that can make the biggest of differences. Our team of volunteers enjoy social events together as well, and you may have spotted them in the Abbey Gardens or Nowton Park doing just that. We are always looking at ways to improve what we do and how we do it. Our training team provides great ways to share their knowledge of cycle paths, new places to visit like Procopio's Pantry who offer free tea and coffee to our passengers on a joyride. You might like to know that I'm a rickshaw controller and Nick is a rickshaw rider. Sadly, an inquest has opened into the death of a man from Brandon whose body was found in a river. The body of Curtis Jenkins was discovered by members of the public in Bury St Edmunds on the morning of Friday, April 28th. The court heard that Mr Jenkins, 28, may potentially have fallen in the river running alongside the nature reserve behind Ram Meadow football grounds. A member of the public called the emergency services after discovering Mr Jenkins lying face down over a branch with his head and hands in the water. Police arrived on the scene and pulled Mr Jenkins from the river. They attempted to resuscitate him but found that he was stiff and cold to the touch. Mr Jenkins was pronounced dead at 11.20am. A full inquest into the death of Mr Jenkins has been adjourned until January 11th. A case review will be carried out on November 28th. A serious sexual assault in a Suffolk town has left community leaders calling for police to step up. Police are appealing for witnesses to a serious sexual assault that happened between 3am and 6am on Sunday, October the 29th around Parkway and Risbygate Street in Bury St Edmunds where a woman was assaulted by a male suspect. 
Mayor of Bury St Edmunds, Diane Hines, said, A serious sexual assault impacts deep into the heart of a family and is something from which the victim will probably never recover. We've seen an awful lot of crime more recently, and I think the Police and Crime Commissioner has many questions to answer on that, as national government does. Police and Crime Commissioner Tim Passmore responded and said, Over the past three years, there has been significant investment in the west of the county, both in officer numbers and in support of crime prevention measures. As a member of Suffolk's Police and Crime Panel, Councillor Hind has an important role to play in how I hold the Chief to account for an efficient and effective police force and I would encourage her to engage with me directly if she has specific issues that she wishes to discuss. Abigate Councillor Julia Wakelam said, Last night, for the first time ever in 50 years, I felt really worried in the town centre because there were so many drunks yelling and being very aggressive. There was no sign of police and there hardly ever is. The police need to step up. People are getting nervous and that shouldn't be happening here. A police spokesman said in response, Incidents such as this are rare in Bury St Edmunds, which remains a very safe town for people to spend a night out in. Our officers are tasked with conducting regular patrols in respect of the nighttime economy, both to provide a reassuring presence and to be on hand to deal with any incidents arising. This presence is heightened at weekends, which is the busiest time. Detectives are continuing to investigate the assault in the early hours of Sunday morning and the victim has been supported by specialist trained officers. We are continuing to appeal for any potential witnesses that could assist our inquiries to come forward. A West Suffolk nursing home that was placed in special measures after a watchdog inspection will close later this month. Pinford House, House Nursing Home in Horsted, near Bury St Edmunds, was rated inadequate by the Care Quality Commission after an inspection in September where concerns were raised over safeguarding, patient monitoring and fire safety. New Now, Suffolk County Council has announced the home, which housed 35 at the time of the CQC inspection, will close on November the 15th. A spokesperson for Suffolk County Council said... We are working closely with CQC and health colleagues to support residents living in Pinford End House uh, to find new care provision following the owner's decision to close the home. The quality and safety of care for residents is always our primary concern and we are confident that new provision will be found for all residents in the coming days. The spokesperson said there were seven residents currently in the home and moving arrangements were underway for each person. Pinford End House Nursing Home was inspected by the CQC after it received concerns about safe care and treatment, safeguarding and safe medicines and management. Amongst other things, it was found that the home, which provides personal nursing and end-of-care end of life, did not always respond to safeguarding concerns in life with their own policy, and when events including safeguarding incidents took place, Records did not evidence what action had been taken. Inspectors found the provider's governance system and audit process continued not to be robust enough to ensure shortfalls were addressed and the home had failed to take action in response to fire safety concerns raised after external fire inspection visits. Katriona Eglinton, CQC Deputy Director of Operations, said, We found leaders didn't manage staff well 
and when talking to inspectors about their experience of walking, working at the service, some staff were visibly upset. They told us there wasn't regular supervision or staff meetings. They also told us staff morale was low and the atmosphere was unpleasant as, according to one member of staff, leaders were more focused on money than people's care. This Saturday, the Edmund Octet are giving a concert in aid of News Talk in Churchgate Street in the Unitarian Meeting House. It is at 7pm. It would be lovely if you could come or please tell people about it. I'm conducting the concert and Nick will be singing. We're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Sheila, Pat, Nick and Jill, it's goodbye. Bye. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.